The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly Evans once again. And here's what is ahead. Was yesterday's big market reaction just an overreaction to a relatively modest increase in inflation or an excuse to take profits or something maybe more alarming? Lots of ors. One of our guests says it's just a matter of time until we see more, not less, inflation. He'll tell you why and how he is positioning as a result. Plus, shares of Robinhood surging after the company posting a surprise profit. It also got more aggressive in courting customers away from bigger brokerage firms. But what happens if those promotions expire? We'll ask Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev and his CNBC exclusive with Kate Rooney ahead. And EV demand it is slowing globally. Range anxiety, just one reason, but we'll introduce you to a company that is capitalizing on that and trying to change your mind. It's an interesting concept. All right, markets rebounding today after the worst session in nearly a year following that increase in consumer-led inflation. But was that number just a blip, or could we actually be looking at more of a worst-case scenario that will require the Fed to either keep rates high or simply not cut for longer than we think? Steve Leishman is here with more on, no doubt, the great debate on Wall Street. Exactly, Brian. There are two opposing scenarios out there that dominate this debate over that hotter than expected inflation number. The one held by, I'd say, a majority of economists that I'm reading is that it was mostly a blip and that inflation will resume that downward trend. Under this scenario, you had these one-time January price increases like motor vehicle insurance, housing pushing up inflation, but is eventually going to decline. And the PCE coming Feb 29 will be somewhat cooler in part because it has a lower weighting for housing. Austin Goolsby, the Chicago Fed president, talked about this today. He said this this morning that higher inflation for a few months is it's okay. It still means we could be back on on the path to two percent, the two percent target. He added one should not judge the trend from one month's numbers and pointed to that difference between housing inflation and the CPI and market gauges that show rents falling. But there is, of course, the more worrisome scenario that needs to be considered. The easiest disinflation is behind us, the result of supply chain shortages easing, and that last mile from 3 to 2% is going to be a tougher one and could require a harder landing. The Fed may well have to hold rates higher, staying in restricted territory the longer, and that by definition increases the risk of recession. So yes, my uh, assessment is that the risk of recession has gone up moderately. While stocks have recovered something of the more hawkish outlook for the Fed, it, the more hawkish outlook for the Fed remains there. The year-end funds rate futures contract rose 30 basis points and stayed up there. So the market looks for around 105 basis points of cuts this year, not the 175 basis points that it looked for a month ago. For now, Brian, the inflation report introduces risks to that coveted soft landing scenario. That is not the base case of many economists, but it could only be countered by better inflation data. All right, let's dive a little deeper in. Steve, stay there. We're going to add another voice to the conversation. And your first guest today says he is not surprised by the market sell-off because it was only a matter of time before tight labor and product markets result in more, 
not less inflation. Here to explain that view is Richard Bernstein. He is CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors. Richard, good to have you on the program. Uh, what do they call it? Somebody called it, maybe, maybe this is Steve's term, the immaculate disinflation or something. Is that dream now dead? Well, uh, Brian, good to be with you again. I think um, uh, I think you can, my, our view can kind of be summed up in, in very quickly here in terms of in my 40 year career, whatever it is, there has never been a time when the consensus economic forecast correctly forecasted a recession. That's never happened. Recessions are always a surprise. And so if you accept that history, what you want to look for are situations where if you think there's going to be a recession, you want to look for situations where the leading indicators are rolling over and the economists are ignoring that. What do we have today? We have the exact opposite. The leading indicators are troughing and economists are calling for slowdown and recession. That says that we're likely to have more positive surprises in the economy, not only for the consensus forecast, but for the Fed itself which argues that there's probably going to be more inflation relative to expectations rather than less, which means the Fed is kind of handcuffed in terms of their flexibility. Mm -hmm. Steve, I feel like the economy is kind of the the economic version of the Kansas City Chiefs, right? About mid-season, they weren't looking like they used to. They were starting to lose. They lost to Denver. Everyone like it's over. Here comes the slowdown. They'll never make it. Then they went. In other words, they just kept outperforming. And in many ways, I feel like the American economy, just every time somebody's like, well, we're done now, it surprises to the upside. Yeah, well, give me a call after the show and tell me who Taylor Swift is in this scenario of yours, uh, <laughs> uh, Brian. But it, it, in any event, um, I, I think that's right. Um, uh, and Richard is right as well. The economists had it dead wrong in forecasting the recession last year, and it sure doesn't feel that way. I would point people's attention tomorrow morning at 8.30, we'll get the retail sales report. It's supposed to show some uh, 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 cooling of of consumer spending, but not all that much. So we'll see. Uh, We're now at a 3% or so GDP forecast for the first quarter. So that's not really much of a cooling. Uh, People have, have, have tried to count it out. I think people misunderstand or don't understand at all the dynamism of the American economy. I was just thinking about this Brian, you cover the energy business. You realize, of course, there is an economy the size of Saudi Arabia inside the United States. We have a whole tech economy. We have an incredible uh, uh, technology economy that, that, that's just out there in addition to manufacturing. Um, it is just wrong to uh, uh, predict recession over an economy that's as dynamic as the United States without major, major policy errors. Yeah, it certainly is. Rich, I think Steve, as usual, makes good points here. Um, Why have most, I mean, I'm not not picking on any one person here. Almost every major economist has gotten it wrong to some degree. Is there a way to go back and say, what exactly was, was there a moment in time where we, we all missed kind of the same thing? So, Brian, I think the monkey wrench in forecasting right now has been the the tremendous amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus that was put in the pipeline because of the pandemic. If you just look at money growth for a second, money growth peaked out at 27 percent, the highest in modern U.S. history. That rivals us with Peru at that point. I'm not sure that's something we should be proud of. But but I think what most economic models haven't been able to deal with is that extreme amount 
amount of monetary growth. And it, what it may mean is to for that for that amount of growth to work its way through the Python to come out the other side is going to take a long period of tight monetary policy. It's not just you can do it for six months or a year and say, okay, we've conquered everything. The money multipliers are, are high. We all know about the, 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 uh, the long lag times of monetary policy. Well, shouldn't they be last longer and, and be more powerful at 27% money growth than at four or five or six? And I don't think too many economic models have that in the models because we've never had anything like never had a model. I, that's the thing, Steve. I, I feel like, honestly, Steve, I feel like this is a this is a, a, an amazing moment in history, because if we pull this off, all that money growth, if debt ends up not mattering at all, and it hasn't mattered, there's still a lot of demand for U.S. debt, 34 trillion. Nobody seems to care. It's like modern monetary theory worked, maybe. Right, rewrite the textbook moment. Well, we did have the inflation to go along with it, but I would point out, I didn't know Bernstein was going to hit me with an M2 discussion, but that, that <laughs> said, I think uh, M2 has been negative and, and falling year over year for, for, for quite a while, if I'm not mistaken. I'll look that up in just a second. So I don't know that, that the previous growth in the money supply explains the current growth, uh, unless, of course, you, you factor in those lags he was talking about. Um, I, I, I do think... Brian, it's worth thinking about what this whole thing might mean for stocks. I think it is interesting. The rally is taking place today. It's not a huge rally. It's a bit of a rally in some place, in some cases. But uh, with with the funds rate or the new outlook for the Fed, for the new hawkish outlook for the Fed still in place. So there is still upside or there's still some possibility for recovery uh, in the stock market. The other thing is, if the Fed does more, it likely means there's more growth out there. So we're at this you know, classic tension here between, well, the Fed's going to do more. Why is the Fed going to do more? Because the economy is doing more. And I don't think just because the Fed is doing more, it's a reason to give up hope on growth or give up growth on growth in earnings. You know, we could probably well, do the whole I, hour. I, Rich, we got to leave it there because I think when, okay. when you brought up M2, you literally opened this box and this Pandora's box and all these ideas came out. Love to even do a lot more on this down the road, and I'm sure we will, but we got to say goodbye for now. we got a big interview coming up. Steve and Rich, thank you very much. Great discussion, guys. All right, shares of a Robinhood surging 9% today. They reported a surprise profit in the fourth quarter. The relatively still new online, new-ish, as the kids would say, Online brokerage notched more than $4.5 billion in deposits last month. That is the highest monthly total since 2021's meme stock craze. Also worth mentioning, the average transfer balance topping $100,000, suggesting that Robinhood is starting to serve wealthier clients, growing beyond the core of that sort of young first-time investor thing. And while one in three net deposits come from competitors, its overall assets still pale in comparison to a Schwab or Fidelity. But hey, they're getting bigger, not smaller. Kate Rooney with an exclusive interview with Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev. Take it away, Kate. Thank you so much, Brian. Vlad, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being here in person. Thanks for having me. I want to start where Brian really kicked off there with net deposits and the sheer amount of money you're seeing flow in from others like Fidelity, which you mentioned by name on the call. Part of this has been some of the promotions and incentives for people to move money. What gives you confidence that people are still going to transfer money to Robinhood after some of those promotions end? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a combination of things. I'd say the promotions have been an element of it, and really we're able to offer these promotions because we're a technology company, and we've lowered the cost of servicing these customers relative to a dr traditional brick-and-mortar institution. Um, and right now, for gold customers, we're offering not just a 3% match on contributions into retirement accounts, but on 401k rollovers and incoming transfers as well. And really, uh, the idea there is we can offer this because um, we are a technology company. Our cost of servicing is correspondingly lo lower. Mm -hmm. and. It's a great value proposition for people that are moving in larger accounts and who have accumulated assets because you get an immediate boost to, uh, to your retirement savings through it. Brian mentioned that as well. $100,000 was the average size of the transfer. Has that changed at all the demographics of the average trader on Robinhood? You guys have sort of had this reputation of being for younger, first-time, really active yeah. traders. Is that a misconception at this point? What does your demographic look like? Well, if, if you remember uh, about a year and a half ago, as the market changed, uh, we sort of changed the strategy in uh, the business quite fundamentally. Mm -hmm. We said we would focus on three things. One is actually serving active traders rather than simply novice first-time investors. Mm -hmm. um, we're f we've been focused on growing wallet share with customers, so not just being sort of like the side account or the account for discretionary uh, investing, but doing more of the retirement, more of the savings. Uh, and then the third thing being expanding internationally. And it's always good to see sort of like some of the results coming in because these sorts of strategic shifts take time to execute and to actually reflect in the business model and the financial profile of the company. But yeah, I'd say the results of this quarter show that that's actually working. You see gold subscribers growing 25% uh, year over year. You're seeing continued growth in market share for equities and options. Right. And that, that's sort of a testament to all the improvements we've made on the active trader side. And then now you're seeing these like strong inflows where you have people putting in, you know, six figures, seven figures plus into, into Robinhood, which yeah. wasn't really a story that, that people talked about or really associated with Robinhood. But the experience actually is quite good, not just for a small account, but for larger accounts as well. What are they buying? What are you seeing in terms of trading activity on Robinhood? Well, the accounts that are moving in tend to have larger portfolios that they've been holding elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So you've been seeing those moving in. But um, yeah, if you look at Q4, you've seen continued strength in equities market share. Mm -hmm. So equities market share actually went up by uh, 14% year over year. Yeah. Options market share also went up considerably. And the crypto market share has been quite strong. And, you know, as, as we kind of announced uh, in, in the November mm -hmm. and December metrics, that increased substantially as well. So we kind of see uh, market share coming to Robinhood from across the board and in, in all assets that we offer. I want to ask you about crypto. How important is that to the business going forward? And have you seen any of that momentum continue that you saw in the fourth quarter? Is it only based on prices? And if that's the case, is that sustainable going forward? Yeah, I mean, we uh, typically what we've seen and just to level set um, in Q4, total uh, quarterly revenue was a little bit over 470 mm -hmm. million. 
of that 43 million was crypto revenue. Yep. So it's important and we're a major player in the crypto market but we're also a diversified business. We've, right. we've added all, all sorts of other revenue streams from assets-based revenue, subscription revenue with Robinhood Gold, and all the us, other assets that we trade. So certainly yeah. it's important, but it's still sub 10% of the overall revenue mix. Um, and I think w what we focus on is there's periods of price appreciation in crypto, bull runs and kind of winters. And in the bull runs, uh, you tend to see a lot of retail engagement and excitement and, and volumes can tend to increase quite dramatically. Um, but in other periods, we've continued to invest. We're continuing to add functionality. We're expanding in the EU as well. And, and there, we've been tracking our market share. And if, if our market share continues to increase during the winters, then I think that positions the company very well to capture the lion's share of the activity during the bull runs. You sound a lot more aggressive on the analyst call, I have to say, in terms of you know, going after Fidelity, going after Schwab. You've now got $100 billion in assets, but I was looking, Schwab's at $8.5 trillion, Fidelity, $12.6 trillion. They don't seem to really be shaking in their boots in terms of Robinhood coming for, for their client base. Should they be worried at all? And when will Robinhood get to that level, get to the trillion dollars in assets? What are you doing to make that happen? Well, I, I would say that... Um at first, uh, nobody was really concerned when Robinhood came out and offered commission-free trades and no account minimums. They would say, oh, you know, we don't want those accounts anyway, and our premium customers actually don't mind paying those commissions. And then you saw very quickly that that narrative shifted, and you know, the, the industry was forced to adopt our business model largely. And, largely forced, forced to adopt the user interface. You know, there, there's a reason why every brokerage app that's relevant starts looking more and more like Robinhood, right? Um, so I, I think it's certainly in the incentives are for them to kind of ignore uh, us taking assets. Um, but I think if, if we keep plugging away and continue to take share, um, they'll have to respond somehow. What's to keep them from responding in the way that you guys have offered incentives to, to take market share and to offer you know one percent matching and things like that. Couldn't they do the same thing? You, you kicked off the brokerage price war. Yeah. What if they adapt and try to steal some market share back? I think they they, they probably will try limited things, but offering one percent matches or three percent matches when you have eight point five trillion in assets can get quite expensive. No, so um, you know it's it, it puts a lot of pressure on. On the financials, so it's it's a little bit of uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit of the innovators dilemma there. We'll see. And actually, last question: last time we spoke, you had not seen Dumb Money. Have you seen the movie yet? Uh, I watched some clips of it. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I think that I think that the story of uh, the real story of Robin Hood. The sort of uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning, Oscar-winning narrative has uh, yet to be told. So, um, yeah, hopefully someone will figure out how to tell the true story, and maybe the the book and and the movie will do a little bit better in the marketplace. We'll see, Vlad. It's great to see you in person. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, Brian, we'll send it back over to you. Kate, Kate, have you Thank seen you. the movie? Have you seen the movie, Kate? Because I, I have hate not. To say it, I actually haven't seen it, and I think. A well, Myself apparently, and a couple I'm of our colleagues have a cameo, but 
It's on my list. Apparently, I'm in it, or my voice is in it. And some people keep pinging me. They're like, I just watched Dumb Money. <laughs> You're in it. I know, exactly. Well, I think my voice is in it, which Faber's joins. Faber's in it. Sarah mentioned this morning that he should have won an Oscar, and you know, I'm I'm with her. So. Yeah, I want a <laughs> I want a slice snubbed. of that. All right, Vlad. <laughs> you were snubbed. Faber was snubbed. Anyway, thank you, Kate excellent. Rooney. Thank you. I, yeah, I have no idea. I guess my voice is in it because it's so melodious. By the way, Robin Hood is a five-time CNBC Disruptor 50 company, and this is the final week we are accepting nominations for the 12th annual list of private venture-backed companies that are changing the game. To learn more, you can scan that QR code on your screen if you're quick enough or go to cnbc.com slash disruptors. Right on deck. Nearly a trillion dollars of commercial real estate debt set to mature this year. Up next, we're going to talk to real estate mogul Don Peebles about some of the biggest risks now, but also some of the opportunities that are out there. Plus... We're talking crude, computing, and crinkle-cut fries. It's all part of earnings exchange, and it's coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some more worrying signs, like we needed more, in the commercial real estate space this week. New data from the Mortgage Bankers Association showing commercial loans due this year swelled over $900 billion, a jump of 40% from the earlier estimate of $659 billion. It's because many loans set to mature last year have been able to be extended to 2024 this year and 2025, which is next year. Those now need refinancing or a sale at steep discounts. Industry titan Richard LaFrac was on Squawk Box earlier today sharing a rather bleak outlook. People have lost confidence, and that's why there's no liquidity and no transactions occurring. Even the uh, distress funds have not been that active yet because they don't know what anything is worth. But at the same time, this is not going to be a moment in time where everything blows up. It's just going to be kind of a dull pain that continues in the system. And while your next guest agrees, times are tough for the industry. It's something that he has experienced before and he thinks relief will come, not from the banks, but from the private credit industry. Joining us now for more is billionaire real estate developer Don Peebles, chairman and CEO of the Peebles Corporation. Don, this sort of rolling real estate apocalypse has not happened. It has not come upon us yet en masse, certainly some buildings. You and I have talked about this a lot. Right now, can you figure out the value 
of a building. I read an article this morning, and one of the problems is that nobody actually seems to know what a lot of these buildings should be worth. Well, I mean, I, I just heard um, Richard's comments, and Richard's a good friend. I saw him last week, and he's certainly very pessimistic about the market. I'm pessimistic about office buildings as well, but I don't think that the reason we're not seeing activities because people don't understand value. I think we've got a good handle on the value of many of these buildings. If you operate from the perspective that office occupancy has changed forever um, until something else shocks the system, you know, probably decades from now, um, we're going to have a hybrid workforce. And so that has had a major impact on office buildings. But this is different, by the way, than, say, the early 90s, because the banks don't have over leverage. They are 60 percent of the values of those assets when they made the loan. So they can take a 40 percent hit in value and not be hurt. It's the equity that's wiped out and it's the mezz lenders that are wiped out. And the banks just don't want to deal with all of these headaches. They were hoping things would change. They're not. So I think we'll begin to see more asset sales um, uh, happening uh, mid-year uh, to the um, into the third quarter and fourth quarter, where we'll see a lot of activity, I think, um, in terms of commercial office buildings. I heard a crazy story from a good friend of mine, somebody you probably know, but I don't want to I won't say his name on the air. We could talk offline. And he told me a story which I thought was was insane. But I, I can't prove it. You probably can, which is he was telling me the story about in New York City, a building. And let's say it, it was bought for seven hundred dollars a square foot. OK, it's somewhere around there. And it's in distress. And they just sold the building for like three hundred and fifty a square foot. So the building was sold. The guy that bought it lost basically half his value. But in the real estate transaction, New York City valued the building at seven hundred and three dollars a square foot even after the sale at half its value because they have to pretend this is not happening for tax reasons, for tax revenue reasons. Is that possible? Yes, it is. In fact, I started in the real estate business as an appraiser and a consultant, and I owned, I built and owned the largest property assessment appeals business in Washington, D.C., and we prospered in the early 90s because the government was refusing to recognize that the massive decline in commercial real estate that took place. And so what's going to happen is the governments are going to force property owners to sue them and appeal their assessments and sue them to get their values lowered. And that's because they cannot afford the massive revenue loss. D.C. alone is going to be down $400 million in property tax revenues this year alone. That, but that's insane. I mean, I want our audience to understand what we just said and you just confirmed, right? Let's say they have a house that's valued at $500,000. Subprime hits. They sell the house at $250,000 because they can't afford the $500,000. They need to dump out of it. And whatever town or state they live in values the house at above $500,000, completely ignoring the reality of the situation because they're desperate for tax money. I get why they're doing it. It's wrong, but I understand it, Don. But is that kind of behavior going to dissuade sales because future buyers are like, I can't be on the hook for those taxes when I'm underpaying for a building? No, I don't think it will, because what happens, it'll affect residential property owners. So D.C., for example, has about 170,000 parcels that they assess annually, a small fraction, about 4,500 to 5,000 appealed when we were in that business, mainly commercial property owners. Commercial property owners will use the system. They'll hire lawyers and they'll work the system and get reductions. It's the residential homeowners and small 
property owners, small commercial property owners who can't avail themselves of the appeal and litigation process to get their properties down. And so these governments will take a view of let's let everybody fight for their reductions and we're going to hold values. And New York, D.C. and others are going to have to do that or they are going to almost be insolvent. Wow. I mean, that that to me is one of the most interesting stories. And it just goes to show you how, how needy D.C. And, and New York City are for money. Not the case with Miami, though, is it, Don? I mean, I, every time I go to Miami, it's like warmer and there's a new building popping up or my buddy Tillman's opening a new restaurant, whatever it is. The growth of Miami is just gobsmacking. Yes, it is. In fact, I'm in Miami right now. But when we came down to Miami in 1997 and started developing the Royal Palm Hotel, it was early in South Beach's history. But what we saw then was a city being built. And we're seeing a global city continuing to be built. It would be like going to New York um, City in the early 1900s and watching that city build and being a part of it. So Miami has a tremendous run ahead of it. It's going to catch its breath, though, by the way. Things are going to slow down a little bit. But uh, Miami's got a great runway ahead of it. South Florida does. Yeah. I mean, Steve Ross building office buildings in West Palm. Great market there, too. But it will slow, to your point. I mean, nothing goes up forever. I, 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 or does it? No, Miami will slow. We're seeing it now on the residential side. Miami's slowing down in terms of volume. Um, and, and prices are pulling back a bit. The COVID um, euphoria is over now. And now we're seeing a more stable and level um, environment, which is going to be good because in order to get more businesses down here, yeah. things have to stabilize a bit. Well, Don, I appreciate it. I don't know if you can see me. I can see you. But I got to say, you have you have fantastic taste in ties. Go back and watch the segment and you'll understand what I'm getting at. <laughs> I think we have the exact well, thank same. Thank you. I credit my wife. I think we have the exact same tie on, although yours is probably much nicer than mine. Uh, Don Peebles, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, the 13 Fs are trickling out. If you don't know what that is, it's basically when the hedge funds come out every quarter and release their holdings. That's a much better way to say 13 F. Leslie Picker has Tiger Global's latest filing. Leslie, we also call it whale watching i don't know if we dubbed it whale watching yeah, first. i don't, I don't know where, the, where that came from but no you're exactly right these are some of the largest managers equity long holdings there's some options in there as well uh, backdated to the end of the year these are fourth quarter filings so as you mentioned tiger globals came out uh, a short while ago interesting takeaways in this one they're reducing exposure to some chinese names uh, for example they sold out of a position of alibaba that stake was worth about 128 uh, million at your end they also paired back JD.com by 11 percent, holding about a quarter of a billion dollars in JD at the end of 4Q and sold out of a small stake in Kanzun. Also, uh, Tiger Global did reduce some exposure to big tech names, names like Alphabet, Meta and Microsoft, as well as NVIDIA. Could be a little bit of profit taking there, uh, but Tiger did increase its stake in Amazon by 24%, and it upped its stake in Taiwan Semi by 48%. Also worth noting, a sizable slash in Uber and Workday, each of those paired back by 41% and 30% respectively. And worth noting, Brian, this was kind of a comeback year, 2023 for Tiger Global. Uh, the firm was up about 29% in 2023. So uh, kind of interesting to follow these moves and see what led to that performance.
Back over to you. Certainly is. Leslie Picker, thank you very much. And I know that, that we're going to see you a bit later on because apparently I've got to read a poem for so-called activist investor. Okay, this for is an not, activist. <laughs> I'm going to say this. is the, and the, Usually I just ignore the prompter and say what I want, but I've got to read this because it's a poem on like the TV news anchor of Yates. Roses are red, violets are blue. Do blocked deals attract you? Again, folks, just reading here. It's, you know... All right, Leslie Picker knows the answer to that. She's going to join us to explain. Meantime, a lot of buzz around Disney lately after their announcements about Taylor Swift, Epic Games, the Fantastic Four. But Nelson Peltz calls it their spaghetti against the wall plan, telling CNBC that Disney's management might be a day late and a dollar short. It's not that I'm not satisfied. You know, this company sells at a multiple of their pronouncements you know, a very high multiple. They made these announcements like this management team just came into office about a week and a half ago. They have been here for 20 years. All of a sudden, they've awakened and they want to start making all these announcements. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. House Intel Committee Chair Mike Rogers releasing a statement today warning of a serious national security threat without providing any details. Rogers says he's asking President Biden to declassify all information about it, whatever it is. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan expressed surprise at Rogers' statement, saying there's a briefing for congressional leaders already on the books for tomorrow. We shall see. Arrests for illegal crossings on the U.S.-Mexico border fell by half in January, making it the lowest, the third lowest, excuse me, month of Joe Biden's presidency. And it's welcome news for the White House, as immigration is one of the biggest issues in this year's presidential campaign. Thousands of Porsche, Bentley and Audi cars are impounded in U.S. ports after a supplier found a subcomponent that broke anti-forced labor laws. According to the Financial Times, Volkswagen has delayed delivery as it replaces the component that came from Western China. Volkswagen uh, stressed it didn't know about the part's origin and notified U.S. authorities as soon as it was notified. Brian, back to you. A couple weird stories there. Yeah. Tyler Matham, thank you. All right, on deck, the action, the story, the trade on three key names ahead of their results. Oxy, Cisco, and Shake Shack coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're going to go from the cloud to then underground, and then we're going to maybe get a burger. All part of today's earnings exchange with the trades on Cisco, Occidental, and Shake Shack. Joining us now is Delano Sapporo. He is New Street Advisors founder and a CNBC contributor. Delano, great to have you on. You ready? we got three names to go through. 
I'm ready. Let's Thanks do it. All right. Oh, you're very welcome. Let's start with Cisco Systems. Been a rough go. Shares on pace for a third straight down week. This is formerly the largest company in the world back in the day, and they are reportedly planning to restructure their business again, including possible layoffs of thousands of employees. But a tough run. Delano, would you touch Cisco now? Right, I would be holding Cisco now. We've been holding a position in Cisco for a while. And, and you, you mentioned some of the areas that, that are a struggle, but if you look at actually the results up for the company, they've been strong. And I think the reason why we saw shares sell, sell off after last earnings result was obviously because of forward guidance. So when you look at it, they've been saying and indicating that customers are taking a pause after such a heavy flow of, of, of buying. And so that demand has slowed down a bit. And they believe that will be transitory, dare, transitory, dare I say, uh, and end in a couple of quarters. So I think investors can wait because Mad has signaled that. And I think you can look at, you know, obviously the decades-long performance of the stock. And one thing they mentioned that was strong is, you know, they haven't actually seen a macro level change yet. They believe it's just more of a smaller level change. And I think that investors can stay in there for a bit. Yeah, I know it's kind of an overstatement, but it always feels like Cisco is kind of in a process of semi-reorganizing constantly over the last 15 years. By the way, it'll, it'll come up tonight because Jim's got an exclusive interview with Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins. Again, you can ask him about that and many other issues. Exclusive Chuck Robbins, Mad Money with Jim tonight. All right, next up, stock two, Occidental Petroleum. It's been a rough run for Oxy and a lot of other big oil stocks lately. However, Roth MKM Research does note Oxy's massive chemicals business offers a bit of insulation from oil uncertainty. Delano, the street also listening for balance sheet details following their buyout of Crown Rock. But you are a seller of Oxy here. Yeah, I would pair it back here. And you're, you're someone that's focused a lot on energy. And this is something that's actually not really a focus area of our portfolio. But the reason why I'd pair it back is you mentioned kind of the balance sheet. That's one of the areas that I've been looking at. And when you look at it, their debt to capital ratio, obviously a little bit higher, they're higher leverage there. Um, and, and I think for shareholders, they're looking for that strong cash flow to be put to good use for their purposes, whether it's buybacks um, or actually, you know, increasing the dividend. So when you look at the, the, the leverage that's being used, that could be a hindrance on that side. So for my also, if you look at it from the risk perspective of the actually prices for energy and oil, which have come down from their peak, um, if that doesn't you know, trend upwards, that can also be another headwind for the company. So for me, it'd be a pairback at this time. Pairback on Oxy. All right. And finally, burgers apparently are back. Shake Shack's investors, they've been making bacon the last couple of months. Stock's been hot. Piper Sandler sees potential for margin expansion under new leadership. Delano? You like Shake Shack, and I'm assuming, you know, probably as a consumer and an investor. Consumer, an investor, this one would be my Valentine uh, for, for, for today. So if you look at it, the same store uh, sales are trending in the right direction, right? And they're also one of the, the consumer discretionary restaurants that are able to increase prices and still hold some demand there. So I think that's obviously a positive sign. And you mentioned the margins. And another one of the reasons why they're able to do that is because they're implementing those kiosks. They're going to be more higher margins. They're going to keep, hopefully, costs down when it comes to labor. And, and you look at the beef prices, hopefully, subsiding as well. So those are some of the reasons. It's they're trading, you know, obviously a little bit on the higher side as far as valuation, but I still think there's opportunities for investors to get in, especially if we see a pullback on, on the earnings result. Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors, looking at Cisco Systems, Occidental Petroleum, and Shake Shack is his Valentine's play. That's a big one. Delano, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Brad. All right, coming up, Carl Icahn, Mr. TWA, setting his sights on JetBlue after its failed spirit takeover, whether antitrust is Proactivist. Next.
All right, welcome back. Carl Icahn revealing a near 10% stake in JetBlue earlier this week, but it's really not the ownership that caught our attention. It is the timing. Icahn started buying just a week after its merger with Spirit Airlines was blocked. Now, Leslie Picker is back, is exploring whether the current antitrust environment is actually sparking more activist-style activity. Poems aside, Leslie, (laughs) what? What did you find out? I liked the poem, but you're right. Broken deals can create a breeding ground for activists. As you mentioned, Icon started building up his stake days after a federal judge blocked JetBlue's $4 billion acquisition of Spirit. From the time JetBlue won the Spirit takeover battle in July 2022 to last month when the deal collapsed, JetBlue's stock had plummeted 44%. That represented or presented an opportunity for Icon to get in. And then once his ownership was revealed, shares surged just 22% yesterday alone, although giving back some of that today. But it's a case study on how broken deals, although a rare occurrence that's becoming more common in the current regulatory environment, can be fodder for activists. There are a few other examples of this in recent years. Last year, the FTC found Illumina's $7 billion acquisition of cancer detection maker Grail as likely to reduce competition and ordered its divestiture. Icon had long been critical of Illumina's pursuit of Grail and how regulatory scrutiny had pressured Illumina's stock prices. Of December, Icon has been preparing a second proxy fight at Illumina to oust directors there. Our own David Faber reported a year ago that Activision Blizzard was on high alert for activists as it appeared like... Uh, likely its tie-up with Microsoft was faltering. And Aerojet Rocketdyne successfully defeated its former chairman in a proxy battle, although ultimately saw its sale to Lockheed Martin blocked, only to face another activist in Elliott, which reportedly helped seek acquisition offers. Aerodyne was ultimately sold to L3 Harris with no opposition from regulators. But to be sure, and this is important, not every broken deal faces the activist ire, but when it leads to share price weakness... Activists can see that as an opportunity. So uh, certainly something to keep an eye on as, as we see, you know, a tighter and stricter regulatory environment, Brian. We shall see and see what Uncle Carl wants to do with JetBlue. All right, Leslie Picker, thank you. All right, on deck, more rhyme time, Huey Lewis style, because apparently it's hip to be there. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas saying it is now fashionable. The negatives on EV, who knew? But you'll meet a fascinating company hoping to change the way you view electric cars, and it all has to do with subscriptions. That is next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Concerns about slowing EV demand ramping up on Wall Street. I mean, who could have seen that coming for like the last, you know, two years? City trimming its EV forecast for this year. Barclays downgrading Rivian to equal weight on signs of demand pressure. Morgan's Adam Jonas now says it's fashionable to be an EV bear. But your next guest hopes to ease some of the customer concerns about EVs. His company is called Finn, F-I-N-N. And it offers short-term subscriptions, six-month to 18-month, to both traditional and electric cars. Of their 25,000 global subscribers, around 40% have opted for EVs. Maximilian Verres, co-founder and CEO of Finn, which is headquartered in Munich, but is growing here in the United States. Uh, Maximilian, thank you very much for joining us. Is, does, does the service in part, I mean, you want to make money, but in part it's designed to help people understand the electric driving experience, because for those of us who have done it, it does have a bit of a learning curve. 
It definitely does. But once you've tried it, people tend to never switch back. And so we see a very, very strong adoption in our service, not only from um, combustion engine vehicles, but also specifically for EV cars, where people want to try out the technology without any of the risk. Yeah, well, I would I would push. I mean, I have three friends that actually just sold their EVs and, and went, went back. But but that aside, they've all got unique circumstances. Um, I'm looking here in the United States. I see a lot of gas, ice-powered, internal combustion engine cars. Are you seeing an uptick in demand in the U.S. as well on the electric side, Maximilian? Absolutely. We see that both in Europe and the U.S., uh, even though in the U.S. it's, of course, a more geographically dispersed um, environment where uh, demand is significantly stronger in some states versus others. Um, and it's also a big function of infrastructure, which still needs to be built out in the U.S. How are you different than a lease? So uh, you can go online uh, on fin.com or in less than I'm five right, minutes. I'm there right now looking. <laughs> uh, get your car delivered in a couple of days and then everything, uh, it's going to be delivered to your doorstep and everything is taken care for you. So uh, maintenance, uh, insurance, registration, all of that is taken care of by us and you can focus on the driving. Are there mileage limitations? Um, you can pick a mileage package that works for you, and we are flexible, and so uh, typically everybody finds a mileage package that works for them. Um, with a typical subscription, 750 miles are already included, and you can also opt for larger packages. Okay. Now, of your EVs, you're, 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 you're a German company. You're very heavy in Germany. You're mostly on the East Coast of the United States. I imagine you've got growth ambitions here. Of the people that are picking the electric side, is Tesla still the overwhelming choice or are we finally starting to see the audis of the world the fords of the world the volkswagens of the world finally start to make a dent so i would say there are two kinds of people there are basically tesla ev drivers and non-tesla ev drivers um, but we see the second uh, portion of uh, the second group to grow uh, significantly and see a lot of interest in audi electric vehicles specifically but also with ford uh, with other brands there is significant demand also for non-tesla evs it's, it's amazing you say that because I, I i said about a year ago not trying to take credit i said there's two types of people there's nobody wants evs they want teslas because teslas are really their own thing right it's they're not car people necessarily all my buddies that own teslas are more tech forward people but then there are car people that want the amenities they want the the rich leather and all the dials and the knobs they want to feel like they're driving a, quote, traditional car, right, Maximilian? They're different things. Uh, 100%. There's the two kinds of people, and uh, the Tesla people definitely also want the whole customer, and uh, the Tesla people definitely, 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 and the Tesla people definitely, and uh, 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 the Tesla people definitely, and from pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 